Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us isn't curable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Rotoli today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Thank you, Dr. Rotoli, for agreeing to talk with me today. Could you tell me a little bit about how did you become a doctor? The seed was planted when I was really young, like in sixth grade. I don't have anybody in medicine in my family. And we had to do some sort of like career report in sixth grade. And, you know, when you're that age, you have teachers and you know your doctor and you know the, like the police officers and firefighters. Like there's not a lot more that you know. So I picked, <laughs> I picked pediatrician and did a report on that. I guess the seed planted that early. However, when I was a senior in high school, I participated in a program called New Visions, which allowed me to do some medical shadowing for half of my day, every day in senior year, which was really interesting. And so I saw therapists and physicians and nurses and lots of different allied healthcare fields. And one of the things I was able to do was work at a school called Mary Cariola, which is under the Arc of Monroe. And it's a school for children with developmental disabilities right here in Rochester. It, it was incredibly enjoyable. And I really felt like I could make a connection with the students that were there. And that became eventually my motivation to go to medical school. So I, I worked there part-time throughout college and I really enjoyed being in the classroom with them, but I was really curious about developmentally what was different compared to a typically developing child. And that became sort of my, my motivation. I, I was really interested in the science behind differences between people. And so that was my motivation. Now, my path to medical school was not direct, we'll say. So in college, I was whatever, pre-med, but my, my major was biology. My minor was American Sign Language. And like I said, I didn't have anybody in medicine to guide me. And I think because of that, I took the MCATs and was totally unprepared for it. And I didn't have great mentorship in terms of what I thought my application needed in order to get me into medical school. So after doing poorly on the MCATs twice, I almost decided to go to graduate school uh, to become a teacher, but ended up doing a post-baccalaureate program at Drexel in Philadelphia. And this was a, a really enlightening and motivating opportunity for me. So I, my program, I was able to take all of the medical school classes essentially with the medical students, except for gross anatomy over the course of the first year. And then we were essentially graded against them using the same standards. So I got a real glimpse into what medical school was like, and I absolutely loved it. I thrived really hard, which allowed me to thrive. And then I, I was much more serious about the MCATs and was able to do quite well on it after taking it for a third time. And, you know, I had applied to medical school after doing poorly on the MCATs the first time and, a, and got zero interviews. And the second time, I think that I had more experience. I had more knowledge. I was very clearly more serious about it. And my MCAT was better. I got a bunch of interviews and, and got in. So I moved within four weeks. 
from Rochester to Philadelphia after not thinking I'd be moving at all and then lived there for two years, which was shocking to my family. Nobody leaves Rochester for my family. But then I got into a couple of medical schools and chose to go to Buffalo because it was close to home. And I really enjoyed the people there when I was interviewing there. And I was able to make some really great connections in Buffalo, friendships throughout medical school and residency. But I was also able to integrate myself into the deaf community, actually in, in Philadelphia and in Buffalo. I had minored in American Sign Language in college. I was still very interested in it. I loved the language and wanted to become fluent and learn and learn more about the community. So I worked at the deaf school in Pennsylvania part-time and over summers. And then I worked at the deaf school in Buffalo part-time and over summers and developed a lot of really close relationships with some deaf colleagues at work who are now good friends of mine. And that sort of became my motivation for being involved with the deaf community here in Rochester and and using you know whatever healthcare knowledge I can to advocate for the deaf community here and so I was able to come here and create a, a niche for myself within my department and start doing some educational projects and some research projects and community outreach and and that has sort of snowballed into the career that I have today I'm curious where do you think your interest in uh, kind of the differences in people and how you could, it, seems, it sounds like how you could really learn and grow from that. Where do you think that interest came from? I think it was from recognizing even among the students that were at this school in Mary Cariola, there were such drastic differences in their physical, social, emotional, linguistic development that I was really intrigued by that. There were two portions of the school. One was a section for children who had, I would say, typically developing physical features, but maybe had autism or Asperger's or some somewhere on the uh, pervasive developmental disorder spectrum. I don't actually know if it's even called that anymore. But so there was that half of the school. And then there was another half of the school where it was children who required wheelchairs and a lot more, you know, changing of clothes and diapers and, and being fed. And so there were just drastic differences between all the students and and what they could do. And so I was really interested in learning that. I actually thought that I would go into developmental pediatrics when I got into medical school because I was so interested in that. And then, you know, I, I found out about emergency medicine and my interest kind of kind of swayed a little bit. And so what was it about emergency medicine that kind of swayed you to take that path over the developmental pediatrics path? I, I think that the bottom line is that when I envisioned myself being a doctor before medical school and even during medical school, I envisioned myself as being capable of helping anybody in any situation and having the at least the knowledge to know what to do, even if I didn't know what was going on. That was sort of my definition of a, of a physician, you know, somebody who is able to step in in any situation and help. And so our healthcare system is designed in a way that does not allow most physicians to do that. It's so subspecialized that most physicians lose a lot of their general medical knowledge. There are obviously some specialties that have very broad medical knowledge, right? The primary care specialties and and emergency medicine. So that was the biggest thing that I wanted to do. And then the other thing, the other part of emergency medicine is that I didn't want to shy away from a challenging situation. I wanted the training and the knowledge to be able to intervene on, on a really challenging situation where a patient may be having a really serious problem. And I wanted to be the person who could interact with that patient and try to help them on potentially the worst day of their life. And I, I remember you saying earlier that you didn't have any 
kind of members of your family who were in medicine and you didn't have many mentors early on. So how did you construct this idea of a physician as someone who's able to help out in any circumstance? I think it still started relatively early when I thought of, you know, my own personal physician when I was younger. It was someone who, if I had a health problem, my, my parents would take me there and they would be able to solve it for me. And so I, that, that idea came, I think, very early on. And then in medical school, it was very clear that that's not really how medicine worked that if you had a bony problem, you went to an orthopedist. If you had a brain problem, you went to a neurologist. So I was trying to think of myself, I was trying to think to myself, well, what kind of physician can I be and what kind of training can I get that will allow me to fulfill my ideal of what a physician truly is? And primary care came to mind and emergency medicine came to mind. Unfortunately, a lot of other fields were ruled out for me relatively quickly because a lot of them were super specialized. So a lot of the surgical subspecialties, I, I I thought maybe being a surgeon would be great too, because I really enjoyed anatomy and I like, uh, and how sort of things move and function and stuff like that. I thought about cardiology for a while because I love cardiovascular physiology. I thought about anesthesiology for a while because I like just physiology and pharmacology in general, but none of those checked all the boxes for me. They, none of them allowed me to be sort of that all encompassing physician that was able to intervene in, in any situation or, or able to have the knowledge to know how to do something, even if I don't know exactly what's going on. I think one of the things I'm enjoying a lot about this project is getting to hear all these different views of what a physician can be. And yeah, I think, you know, I hadn't really thought of the kind of every man, so to say, who can, you know, kind of apply themselves in most every situation. But yeah, obviously that is a role that is necessary and needed in this, in this system. And I guess kind of now shifting a little bit to the questions around work-life balance. And you said earlier that you kind of carved out a niche for yourself in your department. What did that process look like? Because I know a lot of medical students wonder about how will I be able to integrate the things that I love into my work life? Or is it going to be, have to be something that I do kind of after work? Yeah, I, I will. That's sort of a two-part question. So the first part is with regards to work-life balance. <laughs> that that's kind of a misnomer because there's never truly a balance. You should think of it more as like a scale that's kind of tipping one way or tipping the other, and you're constantly trying to rebalance it. Medicine is very demanding of your time, of your energy, and of your emotion. And so balancing that with other things is what allows you to have longevity in medicine. And other things can be other parts of medicine, so education or working with students or residents. It can be research, it can be administrative responsibilities, it can be community outreach. There's just so many different avenues to help balance your clinical work because the, the clinical work, regardless of the field that you go in, is really taxing in so many ways. And it's taxing in ways that people who are not in medicine most likely don't understand because we're not always seeing young, healthy, fit people with no problems, you know? So we, we do take on a lot and our patients expect that of us and they, you know, and they deserve that from us. But the balance itself, it's always a constant work in progress. It is constantly dynamic. You usually don't get to the point where you've balanced it and you're good to go and, and you can just coast for the next 20 years, at least not in my field. It's a constant rebalancing. And, and that part is 
that part is really, really challenging. To talk a little bit about sort of developing my niche in my department, initially it was just direct patient care. So I made it known in my department that I was ASL fluent and if a deaf patient came in and I was working, I wanted them put on my side so that I could take care of them either directly or with the residents. And then it started with a little bit of education within my department to some of the residents, maybe during residency conference to some of the faculty members. And at the same time, I was trying to network here here with the interpreting department, any deaf colleagues that I was sort of able to get to know. And that's how I stumbled upon the deaf health pathway. When I first started working here, Dr. Rob Nutt, who's a deaf developmental pediatrician, he was the director of the deaf health pathways. And so I essentially volunteered for two years to co-direct with him. He did a lot of the design of the coursework and that sort of thing, but we co-taught and came up with ideas together and brainstormed how to improve it and stuff like that. And so then when he actually moved on, he wanted me to take over. And so I was able to take over as the director for the Deaf Health Pathways. And so that's how that portion started. Simultaneously, I was still networking with people here. Dr. Nutt was one of those people and, and one of the other interpreters, her name is Elizabeth Butcher. Uh, we came up with an experiential lecture together. We had some videos that we recorded on appropriate and inappropriate patient interactions, which you may have seen or remembered. And then I started to present that regionally and nationally. So I submitted it for a national conference. It got accepted. And from there, the people who attended started inviting me to their grand rounds at different universities. They loved it. Again, it started to, to snowball in a good way. You know, it, it really did. So it, it, it gave me a regional and national role that I think in emergency medicine, nobody else was doing. And so it became not easy, but I, I was able to get a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities developed from the development of that lecture. And then sort of in my department, I became known as the person who was sort of like the liaison to the deaf community and the sort of expert on uh, providing emergency care to deaf patients. I definitely did not earn that title yet. I'm always still working at that title, but when there is an issue, in my department regarding deaf health care, access to communication or accommodation services, people come to me. And I think it all stems from my interest in being fluent in American Sign Language, working with the deaf community and, and trying to support uh, an underrepresented group. I would say maybe four or five years ago, I got some really good advice from a mentor of mine within my department. And she said, your interest and your niche in deaf health disparities is really the tip of the iceberg. And it is supported by a foundation of your interest in disparities in healthcare, and especially those who require accommodation. And so because she said that to me, it was it allowed me to sort of broaden my interests a little bit. And I was able to take on some national leadership roles, develop some committees that I chair and start to network nationally with other people who share very similar interests. And it's led to research projects and publications and national presentations. And it's really developed very quickly and very naturally. I'm wondering, is that kind of natural development of things, do you know if that's the norm or average experience of a physician who's looking to branch out and do some other things with their time other than clinical work? Is it the norm? No, I don't think so. I think that I think that many physicians feel overwhelmed by their clinical work 
and the amount of time it takes to just do that, that people may be afraid or have difficulty budgeting their time to be able to develop this ostensibly whole other career, right? That seems almost unrelated to emergency medicine or whatever the field is that you're doing. So I don't think it's the norm. I do think that if you have the, the passion for something, trying to integrate it into your medical career allows you to have real enjoyment and satisfaction and fulfillment while you're working. I still love taking care of deaf patients. It's like one of my favorite things to do in the emergency department, but there's so much more to my job than providing clinical care now, you know, disseminating resources for education on how to care for deaf people, you know, in the hospital, before they get to the hospital, educating providers here or in other, you know, other institutions, working with deaf colleagues on research projects, whether it's related to emergency care or language deprivation or their experiences with the interpreters, you know, I've, I've been able to, to really develop this network of people or contacts that has allowed me to pursue additional academic and research and maybe some administrative roles. I think that networking is incredibly important and it is the only way that you can truly develop a real niche or career that that sort of complements your clinical practice. I could have never done this by myself, right? Who would even know me if I just tried to do this all by myself, right? And the other thing is I could never have developed the experience and expertise that I have without the networking and the work experience that I have. So I, I would say that it is not the norm. It is 100% possible, but you have to be willing to learn and you have to be willing to network with people that you can work collaboratively with to develop something amazing. I have been often wondering to myself, how does this happen? And I think that piece of advice about networking is really important. It sounds both that it functions as other people whose ideas and perspectives you can work with, and also, you know, this support system that makes it all possible. Absolutely. Um, and I think before I move on to my next type of question, I wanted to circle back really quick to, you said earlier that medicine is taxing in a way that people in medicine don't really understand. And I, as a medical student, still kind of consider myself not entirely in medicine, wouldn't fully understand that. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think, I think you meant that I said medicine is taxing in a way that people outside of medicine yes. don't understand. Yes. I think that it's a field that demands a hundred percent of your emotional and cognitive ability all the time. And the cognitive ability part is probably something that we're all used to and that many people in many other jobs are forced to or expected to provide, right? But I think that the emotions that we are exposed to and that we have within ourselves and the situations that we find our patients in for one reason or another is something that most other fields won't be able to mirror or understand. I can think of a thousand examples, but something as simple as a patient crying in front of you right? How many, how many careers does somebody cry in front of their colleague? You know, like that's an intense emotional response that we see all the time. You know, it's just sort of normal and part of the job. Sharing private information, really, really private information, or even information about, you know, something that's just socially taboo, like, um, you know, drinking heavily every day or something like that. Those things are shared with us 
immediately a lot of the time. And with the thought that we are not going to judge and we're going to help provide guidance on how to improve this situation. I think the responsibility that we have to our patients is profound and unmatched in a lot of other, in many other fields. I think law enforcement is probably something where you know, people are having their worst day of their life and, and law enforcement experience that probably the legal system too, with lawyers having to experience that too. But there are not a lot of fields that have to, I don't want to say endure because it makes it sound like such a negative thing, but it is to endure the emotions that your, your patients are expressing to understand their situation and to try to, to do something where you feel like you can help them. I think that most people won't understand that. In my field specifically, in emergency medicine, it's very obvious we see more trauma, death, and despair and disparities than anybody in any other field in medicine and, and that anyone else will. So I've seen more death or trauma in my 10, 12 years of emergency medicine than any of my family members will in their lifetime, right? So you think about those things. And again, it's really profound and it is such a privilege to be able to experience that. But at the same time, it can be very taxing. How does the kind of effort that you have to put in as a physician impact your life outside of work? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. It, it impacts it positively and negatively. You know, I, I can sometimes take a step back and think this was a really terrible situation for my patient and I was not able to help them or I was able to help them. Uh, but the fact that I had the privilege to be in that situation with them is absolutely amazing to me. And you can't think of, you don't think of it when you're in that situation, right? And maybe even as a medical student or a resident, you haven't developed that appreciation yet, but you certainly start to, as you see these situations unfold over and over again. But the, the situations that are really challenging absolutely impact me in a way that sometimes it's carried over into my home life. You know, whether I am coming home upset about something or sad or angry about an encounter that I had at work with an, an aggressive patient or with a consultant or with, I don't know, nursing home staff or something like that, it 100% does affect me and it does come out. It comes out in a little bit of change in my personality at home. I'll be shorter with my wife. I'll be shorter with my kids, have less patience for things because I've already given 100% of my emotional energy to work that day. So that is absolutely something that I know I do and I try not to do it. I also have a little bit less of an attention span for when I get home to listen to problems. You know, my son fell off his bike and he's hurt today, or, you know, the kids were arguing all day today, or, you know, my wife had this challenging interaction with one of her tenants or patients or something like that. You know, I find myself not wanting to listen to it and then recognizing that I don't want to listen to it and recognizing that my family deserves the same compassion and attention that I just gave to my patients. So you sort of dig deep and you, and you find a way to get through it. I think that's probably the biggest way that it impacts my personal life. I don't typically have strong physical reactions to any of the situations that I have at work. I usually have healthy coping strategies. My wife and I have a very open line of communication, which is really helpful. She has some healthcare experience. And so I can often vent to her if there, if I had a challenging situation or really sad situation. So that's, you know, that's one way. And then there are some things that I don't want to tell her about work because I, I'm trying to protect her, her feelings, and I know it would really upset her. And in those situations, I kind of have to internalize it a little bit until I can discuss it with one of my colleagues who knows exactly how I feel. You know, I don't have to explain how I feel or, or how a situation made me feel because they've experienced the same thing. Yeah. Hopefully that answers your question. 
Oh, yeah, I think that was very helpful. And I guess the one thing that you said that caught my attention was the concept that you know, at work, you feel that you're giving 100% of your time, attention, emotional energy, and that your family deserves that same level of attention and emotional uh, energy. So how do you go about trying to provide 100% all of the time? Just from my personal experience, that feels like not entirely feasible, at least from, from my perspective. It's not. It is not feasible. And so, you know, sometimes both parties get 85%. Sometimes one gets 110 and the other gets 60%. You know, it's, it is not always feasible. I think that's something that I have really tried to do, especially since the pandemic with my family, is really try to make them more a priority. And so when I put them in that position, it becomes much easier for me to devote more emotional energy and intellectual energy to them, keeping them as my number one priority, which has its pluses and minuses, right? It, it means that my patients may not always get 100% of my emotional energy, but I think that I do a good job sort of digging deep and you know, finding that, you know, that reserve of energy to provide to both parties. Again, it's a, you know, it's a balancing act. The interesting thing about my job is that there are some days at work where everything is a piece of cake and flows easily and you make diagnoses left and right. And there are no social barriers that you have to navigate. And then there are other days where you never make a diagnosis and every person has a social barrier that you have to navigate. And so it, it sort of balances itself out because it's not always one way or another. But if I'm being honest, I'd have to say that there are probably days where you know, my family doesn't get all of my attention and emotional energy. And there are probably days where my patients don't also. And I think that that's just normal. I think that's human nature. And I, I don't think you can do it 100% of the time for both parties. I think it's exhausting. <laughs> I, I obviously don't have a family, but as being a member of a somewhat large family, I can see how that kind of adds up with time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I was also thinking about, you said that one of your goals is to prioritize your family and that partially came about from the pandemic. What was it about that experience that made that shift in priorities for you? To put it simply, it was that all of these extraneous, maybe unnecessary events that were work-related, but not necessarily productive or contributed to my academic development or anything like that, all of that stopped. And I was able to be home. And it wasn't until that happened that I realized how much I was not home and how much I was missing. My family all comes over for New Year's every year. And so before the ball drops, we go around and we say something that we're thankful for, for the year. And so my oldest daughter, who was eight at the time, she said, it was her turn, she said she was thankful for COVID. And I looked at her sort of perplexed and I said, why? And she said, because you're, you're home. And so I, I got super emotional and, and recognized that I had gotten to the point where I thought I was doing the right thing by you know, trying to achieve more and do more at work, which would hopefully lead to better compensation and then make a better life for my family. Um, but all my kids were seeing was me just not being there enough. And so that was a, a rude awakening, but one that I needed. And I'm so glad that I had 
you know, now and not in 20 years, because that allowed me to reprioritize some things and to trim some of the fat, so to speak, and some of the things that I was doing that weren't necessarily productive for my career, that weren't productive for my department, or maybe didn't align with interests that I truly had at work. And that were really just kind of taking me away from the most important thing in my life, which was my family. And what were some of the things that you decided to not do or do differently after that? One of the biggest things is not being available 24 seven. So obviously I have a phone and my residents and, and colleagues have my number to call me or text me, but I took email off of my phone and I do not respond to emails until most of the time, until after three o'clock on non-clinical days. And that sounds really trivial, but Paul, I'll tell you when I first did it and I put that away message up, I caught myself day after day checking my phone for my work email. And it wasn't on there, but it took me at least a week to stop doing that. And I thought to myself, I must have been doing this over and over again. So even when I was home, I wasn't really present with my family. So that has made a huge difference. And also it has retrained other people to not expect me to respond in 10 minutes to an email. If you have something urgent, call me. And, and that, that mindset has really been transformative for me. Oh, there was one other thing that I, that I did. I, I, I also just started recognizing which part of departmental and residency and medical school functions outside of my administrative duties and outside of my clinical duties were necessary for me to be present. And again, it comes down to priorities. A perfect example is yesterday. So I signed up to be on a volleyball team with the residents because it's really, really fun. It happens on Thursdays. I'm usually off Thursdays, but the games are at 715. And so if I'm working all day Thursday in the office and with conference, then I don't see, I go to the game. I won't see my kids at all that day. And that's kind of not acceptable to me anymore. You know, before the pandemic, I'm like, that's all right, I'll, I'll see him tomorrow. But it's not acceptable to me anymore. And so I didn't go. I really wanted to play and it's fun, but it's, it's a perfect example of something that's not totally necessary for me to be there. It has absolutely no impact on like my career development, my administrative duties. And to my family, it's more of a, of a burden, you know, like they're seeing me out doing something and just not at home. So stuff like that, I've been able to, to say no to a lot easier than I would have pre-pandemic, I would say. And I was also curious, you said that part of your rationale for working so hard and devoting so much energy to that part of your life was to, at some point, have better compensation and then hopefully at that point of your life, have more time for family and other people outside of work. And I think that that mindset is one that I've seen a lot play out both in personal relationships and just watching other people kind of progress through the process of becoming a physician. And what do you think about that mindset? I think it's a flawed plan because the more that you do and the better compensation that you have, the more you're going to be expected to do. And so that never leads, like well, maybe I shouldn't say never, most of the time, more compensation does not lead to less work. It's a trade-off. And so, for example, in my field, if I have more academic achievements and responsibilities, then I will have more academic money from my department, from the institution, if I go from assistant to associate professor, and that will offset my clinical work. So I'll work less clinically, but it doesn't mean that I'm working less. It's just a different type of work. Now, working in the office and 
you know, doing academic projects, teaching you guys, like that stuff's more flexible than a shift. So the flexibility is what really helps to, to offset that, at least in my field, but the work is not less. So I think that it's flawed, <laughs> flawed reasoning. Um, if you're looking for passive work, then you should invest in passive real estate where somebody else manages your money. And then you get mailbox money when, you know, when the real estate sells or whatever, that that's how you can still make money and, and have more time. But I think that a lot of us have this mindset where we go to school, we get good grades, we go to medical school, we become a doctor, we work for 25 years, and then we retire and have time for our family. It's just a terrible plan. You know, like you should be spending time with your family or, or whatever is your number one priority outside of work. That should be happening simultaneously through this entire process. But our culture, at least in the U.S., it doesn't dictate that. It really doesn't. That's not the norm in society. The norm is to spend time with your family after you retire and, and outside, outside of business hours, you know. Exactly. People were asking me what I was doing this summer. I asked as well. It's my last sizable vacation, probably until I retire. So I'm hoping to enjoy it. Yeah. So do nothing. Yeah. Do this. Have conversations with people. I'm so glad that you did that. I try to tell the students every year, like, this is your last summer off. You know, don't get a job and work 80 hours a week. You'll be doing that for quite a while. So. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, could you tell me about what are the things that really give you joy outside of work? Um, well, I think you could, you could tell that my first answer will be my family. I love spending time with them, whether we're doing something active, a hike or going somewhere, traveling, or, or whether it's trying new foods or even just at home in our backyard watching my kids develop and acquire new skills or interacting with them and watching their personalities take shape is, it is by far the most enjoyable thing in my life. The other thing that I really enjoy is being involved in the deaf community. I really enjoy interacting with my deaf colleagues and friends. I like doing community projects with them. I like doing educational projects with them. And it's all, you know, it's all volunteer. And I really, you know, I really enjoy it because I feel like I am giving back to a community or trying to make a bridge to a community that often feels isolated. And that's really rewarding to me. And I feel like I can make so much more of a difference doing stuff like that than I can with just my one-on-one -on -one clinical care of a deaf patient, um, which I, of course, love to do, but it's a way, I think, to hopefully make a positive change in a community. I'm trying to think of there are other things. So I'm very into physical fitness. So my wife and I work out probably five or six times a week, and it's really nice when we can do that together. So that's one of the things I really enjoy. And uh, the other thing is my wife and I have a real estate rental business. Uh, we've had it for about a year and we spend a lot of time together sort of working on that, coming up with strategies and talking about, you know, different business models and plans and learning about local real estate. And so that has been really enjoyable for, for us. Yeah, that sounds like a completely different kind of mindset almost than medicine. Totally different. Obviously, I do a lot of people management or, you know, interactions with people every day and all different kinds of people. So both in the clinical realm and in my administrative realm. So that part's not actually that different, but the rest of it is. How did you get into that? I have a friend who lives in DC who has done it for his career for about 15 years or so. And he has truly achieved financial independence and has the ability to spend so much time with his family, but it's from years of doing 
real direct real estate. And so we met with him about a year ago, talked about his business model and some of the strategies that he used. And it was really intriguing to us. And my wife has always wanted to pursue some sort of real estate interest. I never had that interest because I have a full-time job. Um, and so Julie has been able to stay home with the kids over the past several years just kind of working per diem. And so now we have this other business and she's able to provide a lot of her time toward running that, which is nice. But yeah, it, it sort of came out of nowhere. Actually, I think my last question is going to circle back to something you said earlier of where you said some days feel like you can give like 85% to both family and work and your patients. Some days, you know, it's like 60 and like 110%. How do you find compassion for yourself on those days when either one or the other isn't up to where you would like it to be? Man, that's the hardest question you've asked me so far. Um, I think that we're probably most hard on ourselves. I know that I certainly am. When I have a negative interaction, I feel like I don't have the energy to give. And I, I don't know. I don't know how I, how I forgive myself for it. You know, maybe I do it by sort of talking through it with my wife or even apologizing for the way that I was acting. I've done that with my kids too. I've apologized for the way that I was acting, knowing very well that my interactions were not a reflection of them at all, but a reflection of what I had just, you know, gone through for the last day, week, whatever at work. So I think, you know, trying to allow yourself to have those mistakes and be forgiving of yourself is really hard to do. But I think that that's one of the things that's absolutely necessary. Thanks to Dr. Rotoli for sharing his story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. The other day, I saw him on Craigslist selling red tape. And when I asked him about it, he said, I have a friend who lives in DC who has done it for his career for about 15 years or so. And he has truly achieved financial independence. If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.